So you can turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. I think this is a really fascinating story, a really cool look at uh, what God can do for us. So uh, I just want to start out, though, by saying that the Bible that you hold in your hands, whether, well, I hope it's, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, then, well, you're not getting your money, but that's okay. Uh, the Bible that you hold in your hands is uh, primarily a revelation book, right? Not revelation in terms of end times, but it's a revelation book in terms of it reveals to you Jesus Christ. It reveals to you the Messiah throughout all of history, throughout all of this book. It's a revelation book, I would say first and foremost. But also, don't forget that you're, the Bible that you hold in your hands is also a very historical book. And, you know, skeptics, people that don't believe in the Bible, that don't believe in Christianity, they would like to say that this, this Bible is a mythological book, right? It's a book full of fairy tales. It's a book full of mythical uh, people that didn't exist, like, you know, like a divine Aesop's fables, where it's like moral stories of people that didn't really exist. It's like legends. They say that. They say that it's not a real book, but you have to remember that these people that you're reading about, all these random names that you read about, you know, like First Chronicles and stuff like that, they were real people who lived and breathed and died, and they had bad days, and they had boring days, and they had really awesome days. They had the same ups and downs that you did. These were real people that lived and breathed and died. And I say that because, you know, a few years ago... Um, uh, archaeologists actually found um, artifacts and remains of the Egyptian army from uh, when they were chasing after the Israelites, right? Remember that from Exodus like 13 and 14 when Moses and all of them are coming out of Egypt. They're making the Exodus, right? And uh, Pharaoh starts chasing them with his army and then the Red Sea parts in front of all the Israelites. They cross on dry ground and then, and then the uh, Pharaoh and his army chase after them and then they're swallowed up by the Red Sea, right? Remember that story? Well, archaeologists actually found uh, like chariots, they found shields and swords and all kinds of artifacts in the Red Sea. They actually found this, and it was, <laughs> I was reading this article, and it was really interesting what one of these archaeologists said. Mind you, he's not a Christian archaeologist. He's not a guy who's trying to prove the Bible. He's just a guy searching for history, so to speak. And listen to what he says. This is his comments on what he found. He says, the ancient soldiers seem to have died on dry ground. Ooh, that's interesting. And the positions of the bodies and the fact that they were stuck in a vast quantity of clay and rock imply that they could have died in a mudslide or something like a tidal wave. That, that seems to align right with the Bible, don't you think? Yeah, it's, I think it's really cool, though, that they found that this sort of brings a lot of historical sort of, you know, like emphasis and weight to what you read in your Bibles. But believe it or not, I'm sort of, I have, I have conflicting emotions when I read stories like these. And I say that for two reasons. Number one, uh, my first instinct is I'm probably like you. I'm intrigued by this. And I want to read more about it. I want to find out what they found. I want to I read about all these things that they were able to unearth and able to uncover. And I want to read about how one of these archaeologists, now that he found this stuff, he's now converted to Christianity because now this proves the Bible, blah, blah, blah. So at first I'm intrigued. I'm really uh, fascinated by it. 
But my second reaction is, I'm sort of just saddened, really. I'm saddened, not that they found it, but by the fact that we hold it so uh, cherished in our hearts that they found it. That, that when these things happen, when these sort of signs pop up of historical facts that are, that, you know, sometimes I think that Christians sort of treat them like, aha, see, look at, the, see, the Bible is true because they found those artifacts. The Bible, see, you have to believe the Bible now. You see what that does? You're going to outside of history to believe what you should already believe just because it's the word of God. You're relying on something that someone else finds in order to bring proof to the fact that the Bible is true. You see, the Bible never defends its own veracity, its own truth. It always assumes it. The Bible is just trying to tell you that this is true. And why? Because it's built on the absolute sovereignty and authority of God. And because God is Jehovah. You are not called to be an archaeologist. As a Christian, you're not called to be a divine Indiana Jones. You're called to be an ambassador. That's what you're called to do. An ambassador doesn't look for proofs of what he's supposed to say. He just believes it and he proclaims it. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. I wanted to do that with the rest of my life is just proclaim truth, not rely on someone else to find truth in order to believe it. I'm just going to proclaim it. I want to live it. I want to see it in other people's lives, not because they find some sign, but because the Bible is true in and of itself. The truth and authority of the Bible that you hold in front of you, the Bible that's in your hands, rests forever on God's sovereignty, not on signs that we find in history. And I say that because coming to Joshua chapter 10, we find another really crazy, miraculous story that would be hard, I think, to prove if you were relying on archaeology to prove it. Joshua 10. If you're there, I'm going to read some of the verses and I'm going to make comments as we go. And you'll probably get where I'm going uh, as we go on. (laughs) So verse 1. Look at verse 1 of Joshua 10. Now it came to pass... When Adani Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. So this king Adani Zedek, he's king of Jerusalem. Let's call him Adani for short. He hears how Joshua has just sacked Ai. And he destroyed it. And I like how it says, as he did to Jericho. Because remember what happened to Jericho? They had the, all the loud trumpets and everything and the walls fell down. And then later on in the chapter it says that they just burned that city to the ground. So they did almost the exact same thing to Ai. They just sacked it. And so now this king, Adani, he is nervous. He is nervous. He has ants in his pants. He's shaking in his boots. Why? Because now Gibeon has made peace with Israel. And it says Gibeon is even greater than Ai. So now you see this conquering nation has now made peace with Gibeon. And so now he's, oh, man, we're next. I got to do something. And look look at what he does. So therefore, Adani, king of Jerusalem, verse 3, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Jephiah, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon. For I hath made peace with Joshua, and with the children of Israel. 
So he forms this axis of power, so to speak. He calls these five kings. They form this sort of Amorite axis. And they're like, we got to do something about this, these guys, these Israelites. And, and we got we to make sure that they don't come and attack us. So let's go. We're going to attack them. So they go look at verse 5. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. So they're starting their siege of Gibeon. They're surrounding the city. They're starting to, you know, as they did in those times, they were surrounded, stop supplies to get to it. They would try and starve out the people, make them weak, so to speak. So they're starting their siege. They don't want Gibeon and Israel to attack them. They're nervous. The Gibeonites, though, they send for their buddy Joshua. Look at verse 6. And then the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up unto us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. So the Gibeonites, they send this message. They say, Joshua, we need your help. We're about to get attacked. We're about to uh, get, uh, un- we're under siege by these Amorite guys. We need your help. So give uh, Joshua and his mighty men of valor, they go and they help them out. And look at verse 8. Verse 8 is important. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them unto thy, into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Did you notice how God phrases that to Joshua? Did you notice how he promises that? I have, I have delivered. It's as if it's already happened. It's as if he has already given them the victory. And he says, this is me. I'm going to fight for you. You already have won. I'm going to deliver them into your hand. He promises this victory. He predetermines it. And look at verse 9 now. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them. That is, the Lord uh, confused the Amorites before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote unto Ezekah, excuse me, and unto Makeda. So the, the Israelites, Joshua's men, they march up 15 miles, by the way, uphill. They're coming from Gilgal, and they're marching uphill to Gibeon. They march all night. So this army is tired. This army is exhausted. They're marching uphill all through the night. And now they have to go into battle the very next morning. And it says the Lord confused them. The Lord discomfited them. He embarrassed them. These Amorite, this Amorite army got embarrassed by another army that was so tired, that was weak, that was exhausted. So then the five armies begin to flee. These armies begin to run for the hills, so to speak. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them, Unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Ooh, that's an interesting phrase. So, as mighty as Israel was, as amazing as these, as I said earlier, that these mighty men of valor were, of Joshua, God is the one who's getting this victory. 
God is getting this victory. He says there was more people who died from hailstones than who died from the swords. But also look at verse 10 again. Because look at who is doing all the action verbs. It says, the Lord discomfited them and the slew them and chased them. It's the Lord that is doing this. The Lord is driving this battle. He's the one with his hand throughout it all. God is getting this victory. Not these mighty men of valor. God is getting this victory. God is winning this fight. So now, Joshua is in this battle. He's in the heat of battle. He sees these armies fleeing. He knows that what God's promise is, that not one of them is going to stand against him. And he sees them running away. And he's losing hours. He's losing daylight. So what does he do? Look at verse 12. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon. And thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. And the moon stayed. And so the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven. And hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it. That the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. I find that a fascinating piece of the story. Joshua says, sun stand still. And literally, God makes the sun to stand still. He extends the day. Now, some skeptics will try and explain this through scientific phenomena that somehow the light was refracting and it just made the day seem longer or something like that. I tend to believe to take the Bible at its face value, at least here, and believe that God can do this. I mean, I think you believe that God can do this. God created the sun and the moon and the stars, so obviously he could probably stop the sun and the moon and the stars if he wanted to. And I believe that's what he did here. That this wasn't some scientific phenomenon, that this was a miracle of God. God's providence in this situation. God saying, okay, I'm going to slow down this day for you, my people, because as it said in verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. So time froze. Verses 15 through 27, I won't go through them because we're running out of time. But 15 through 27 sort of count how um, Joshua and his men track down their other armies. They're able to totally wipe them out. And so what does this story do for us? Well, it would be hard to ever find evidence of this story, right? We can't really go back and prove that somehow a day was 12 hours longer than other days. It would be hard to find that. Actually, there was evidence, though. Did you catch it in verse 13? Did you notice what it said? It says, Is not this written in the book of Jasher? That's a weird phrase. If you do some research, this book of Jasher was sort of like a, like a Hebrew like poetry book. It was believed that it was a book that the, the Hebrews would write stories and annals of great heroic uh, like soldiers and mighty men, these mighty men of valor, so to speak. And it would recount all of their victories in battle and somewhat. You can see it's also mentioned in Second Samuel chapter 1. But what's interesting that this book uh, is believed to have been lost when the great fire of Alexandria burned up that library. Vast untold amounts of books and knowledge was burnt up when that library of Alexandria in Egypt burnt up. And it's believed that this one was lost too. And why is that interesting? 
well, I'll tell you why I think it's interesting. It's because God removed the only proof that we would ever have another secondary source of this story being actual fact. God doesn't want you to rely on historical facts. He wants you to rely on his word. He wants you to rely on the truth that you read in front of you. Not once some man finds, not once some man believes in his heart. He wants you to believe what he has written for you. He said, this is my truth. You don't need to rely on signs. You don't need to rely on archaeology. You are my ambassador. This is what you are to believe. We're not called to prove the Bible's validity. We are called to proclaim it. You don't have to rely on signs. You don't have to rely on artifacts to believe that what you have in front of you is true. You can believe it's true because God has said it. And this is, I think, our chief comfort in this story. It's the fact that God condescends to this man, Joshua. God condescends to this situation. And the same God who stopped the sun, who stopped the moon, and stopped them in their tracks is the same God that put them in their place. And guess what? This is the same God who's now your father. As it says in Romans chapter 8, that you can cry out to him, Abba, Father. And this is the same God who is now on your side. As it says in verse 14, that it says, the Lord will fight for Israel. God fights for you. As it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, that uh, if God be for us, who can be against us? God is in complete control of every single thing in your life. Every single step, every single season, every single situation that you face in this life, God is in control and he is sovereign in every single moment. And there's no problem that you deem too small or there's no problem that you deem too large where God can't intervene. He stopped the moon and the sun in their place. He can handle your stress. He can handle your problems. He can handle your seasons of total confusion. Believe me, I've been there many times. It's not just you go through it once and then you're, you're, you're champion of it. There's seasons of your life where you're going to be doubting God. You're going to be doubting whether you can get out of this situation. And God is here to tell you, I stopped the moon in this place. I can handle your situation. I can handle your mess. As it says in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That's what his, he's saying to you, I think, through this story in some way. Look at what I did for Israel. Is there anything too hard for me to do for you? I don't think so. Your chaos is no match for God's grace. The things that you go through, whether it's a tough time at, in your family life, whether it's a tough time at school, whether you're uh, confused about what God wants you to do after high school, all those things that you may be going through, God is saying that chaotic thought, I'm better than, I'm stronger than. I would say this, that also God specializes in impossibilities. One writer said it this way, that your extremities are God's opportunities. So when you come to the extreme limits of your ability, that's when God's like, okay, that's my time to take over. So he's wanting to bring you to that point. When you believe that you can't do anything, when you don't have any amount of faith left in you, he's saying, I will do it for you. This is my opportunity. 
to prove to you how strong I am, how sovereign I am, how much I have control over everything. The great reformer John Calvin said it this way, that there is no difficulty in God's way. God can surmount any obstacles without any labor. Just like he stopped the the stars and the sun and the moon in their place in this chapter, he can do anything in your life without any labor. Sometimes he's bringing you through those seasons so that you will come to your extreme limits. And sometimes he's bringing you out of them to show you how good and gracious he is. But whatever difficulty or adversity you're facing, God is in control. And God is stronger. That's a phrase I haven't been able to escape this year. It's because this year, I mean, (laughs) we're only four weeks into it. And I feel like this year it's just really busy. (laughs) But God is stronger than your busyness. God is stronger than all the temptation that you face. God is stronger than all the anger that's in your heart. God is stronger than anything in your life. And he wants you to realize that he's bringing these things up so that he can tear them down. He's sovereign over the stars, the planets, the galaxies, and everything. Nothing is out of his reach. That's encouraging for me because sometimes I feel like I'm so far away from God that he can't be even close to me and I am going to have to crawl my way back to God. But guess what? When you feel like you're out of reach for God, he's right there beside you. You just couldn't see him. That's what God, I think, is proving here, uh, that he is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign in your life and he is in control and he is stronger. But also I would say... That don't rely on other things in your life to believe this book in front of you. Don't rely on archaeology. Don't rely on artifacts. Don't rely on signs. If you go back to Mark 8, which I've preached on before and I won't do it again. I, I'll try because we only have two minutes left. But if you go back to Mark chapter 8, what he, Jesus actually says to the Pharisees, I'm not going to give you a sign. If you, uh, just really quickly, at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, you have the feeding of the 4,000. And then right after that, the Pharisees come up to him. Hey, show us a sign that you are the Messiah. (laughs) He just fed the (laughs) 4,000. What do you want him to do? So he gets in a boat and he just goes across the Sea of Galilee. He's like, I'm done with you. I'm going across the sea. (laughs) You don't need signs. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, don't rely on these special miracles. Don't rely on these artifacts. Don't rely on these things. Believe in me. Believe in my word. As it says in John 6, 29, that the only work you have to do is believe on him who he has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the book that you hold in your hand, believe it or not, it's a miracle. The Bible that you hold is a miracle of God, a miracle of preservation, a miracle of inspiration. And it's a living, it's a speaking book. If you want to find out what you're supposed to do in this life, read your Bible. I've been challenged by that. Trust me. There's been whole weeks when I don't open the page of the Bible. Can you believe that? (laughs) I'm supposed to be called to be a pastor and I don't read my Bible every day. Oh, I'm sinning. Yeah, I am. (laughs) I, just true confessions, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes life gets in the way and then you know what happens when I don't read my Bible for a whole week? That's when I get really stressed out and then it's like, oh yeah, if I just read my Bible, I'd probably be in a better state of mind. And usually that's what happens. 
when I get back into it, it helps. <laughs> it really does. All the proof that you ever need that, that, that God is true and that this Bible is true is right in front of you. Because our primary source of confidence and comfort isn't uh, archaeologists finding artifacts in the Red Sea. It's the Word of God, which is living and breathing and active, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, and is sharper than any two-edged sword. That's what we believe. So this day, this, the day that the earth stood or I should say the day that the sun stood still, is there to show us that God is sovereign, that God is stronger, and that God wants you to believe in that every single day. No matter what you're stressing about, no matter what you are uh, chaotic, no matter what season of, of chaos is in your life, God is stronger. God is in control. Let's pray.